Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. It is a real treat for me to be here at BYU. Uh, both because I'm the proud daughter of two BYU graduates who are here with me today, um, but also because so many of my personal heroes have graced this stage. I hope that I can honor their legacy in some small way with the thoughts I have to share with you. So today I'd like to tell you a story. It's a story about American history, but very likely one that you've never heard before. It's a story about how we got here into the multifaceted crisis facing our nation today. For nearly 50 years, across party lines and with only a few short interruptions, most Americans have said that our country is on the wrong track. A recent study by the Pew Research Center revealed that Americans are broadly pessimistic about our nation's prospects. And the American Psychological Association reports that the future of our nation is a bigger source of stress for average Americans than even their own finances or work. How did we get here? I believe that until we can answer that question, we will be condemned to plunge further down an ever-darkening path. Coming to see our past more clearly equips us to gain mastery over our future. So the tale I'm going to tell you traces the roots of today's problems. I'll share with you an evidence-based story about how we've arrived at our current predicament, as well as some important lessons of history that contains clues for how we can get ourselves out of it. Our story begins in the early 1830s, when a French aristocrat named Alexis de Tocqueville was sent by his government on a fact-finding mission to America. At the time, the United States was a fledgling democracy, barely half a century old, and many nations looked to it as a bold experiment. It was still an open question as to whether the American project would or even could succeed. Tocqueville traveled widely, speaking to citizens, observing daily life, and examining the communities and institutions that made up this new nation. And what he saw inspired him. Americans were profoundly protective of the individual liberty they had fought so hard for, but at the same time, they were remarkably good at coming together to achieve common goals. Wherever at the head of some new undertaking, Tocqueville reported, you see the government in France or a man of rank in England. In the United States, you would be sure to find an association. Americans had found a balance between rugged individualism and pragmatic communitarianism, Tocqueville observed, a unique blend of cultural values that had built a vibrant, participatory, and by comparison to Europe at that time, surprisingly egalitarian society. It was not just rights, but mutual responsibilities that undergirded American democracy there were still serious blind spots to be addressed. Indeed, this was a nation built upon the violent displacement of Native Americans, the enslavement of African Americans, and the disenfranchisement of women. But imperfect as it was, 
democracy in America in the 1830s, Tocqueville felt, was alive and well. But were Alexis de Tocqueville to travel to America once again, further on in our national story, what might he find? Would America fulfill its promise of balancing individual liberty with the common good? Would equality be realized and indeed produce prosperity for all? And would cooperation, participation, and a vibrant associational life be enduring antidotes to tyranny? Let's look at an end-of-century balance sheet. On the broad question of prosperity, things could hardly be better. On the whole, Americans enjoy a degree of opportunity, abundance, and economic freedom of which previous generations only dreamed. And yet, this prosperity has come at a cost which any visitor to this nation could not possibly fail to observe. The poor may be better off in real terms than their predecessors, but the benefits of economic growth are highly concentrated at the top. The gap between rich and poor is tremendous in virtually all aspects of life. Slavery has been abolished, but the ruthless reality of structural inequality still condemns many people of color to a life of intergenerational poverty. And women still struggle to participate equally in an economy that manifestly favors male wage earners. As a result, the American dream has been replaced by widespread cynicism about a rigged economic system. Meanwhile, in the cultural sphere, a philosophy of supreme self-reliance is common, and the pursuit of unfettered self-interest is considered a laudable ethic to live by, Indeed, many of the cultural icons that dominate the American imagination are extraordinarily narcissistic, embodying the idea that looking out for number one is the surest path to success. This drift toward self-centeredness in private life is matched in the public square. In politics, relentlessly promoting one group's interests at the expense of others has created a repeated failure of compromise in a nation more and more fragmented and more and more dominated by leaders who prove shrewdest at the game of divide and conquer. The result is a hobbled government as democratic institutions strain under the burden of polarization. In addition to this economic, cultural, and political malaise, social dislocation is also rising. Sweeping demographic and technological changes have disconnected and reconnected people in countless ways rearranging identities and communities and unraveling a shared sense of belonging. Loneliness, isolation, and despair are on the rise as traditional social structures give way. Worried observers, as Tocqueville certainly would be, use words like oligarchy, plutocracy, and even tyranny to warn of the dangerous reemergence of overlapping political and economic power structures that America's founding was supposed to have banished. Still others lament that the country is on the wrong track morally and culturally, noting that huge numbers of Americans seem to have stopped believing that we're all in this together. Does democracy in America, they wonder, stand on the verge of ruin? Though it would appear so in every way, the nation that I have just described is not today's America, but rather a historically accurate portrait of this country in another era, 
at the opening of the 20th century, just 50 years after Tocqueville wrote his stirring depiction of a thriving democracy. The United States in the 1880s and 1890s was startlingly similar to today. Inequality, political polarization, social dislocation, and cultural narcissism prevailed, all accompanied, as they are now, by unprecedented technological advances, prosperity, and material well-being. The parallels are indeed so striking that the foregoing description could have been given word for word about our nation today. Looking back to a time Mark Twain disparagingly called the Gilded Age, turns out to feel eerily like looking in the mirror. But this realization that we've been here once before begs the question of what happened the last time our nation found itself in such a troubling state of affairs. Clearly, the doomsday prophecies and despairing anxieties of the late 1800s were never fulfilled. The fear that the American project was headed off the rails proved unfounded. So how did we get from the last American Gilded Age to our current crisis? What happened in the intervening century? One way to answer this question is to examine trends over time in various aspects of American society by asking the basic question of whether things have been getting better or worse since the turn of the 20th century. In other words, over the past 125 years since the last Gilded Age, has America been moving toward greater or lesser altruism and solidarity and cultural values, greater or lesser cohesion and association in social life, greater or lesser cooperation and compromise in politics, greater or lesser economic equality. When charting the answers to these four questions side by side, we see an unmistakable, even breathtaking pattern. In each unique case, culture, Society, politics, and economics, the trend line looks like an inverted U. Starting its long upward climb at roughly the same moment and then reversing to a downward descent within a remarkably similar time frame. Now, each of these trend lines represents scores of underlying measures of each different aspect of our society. Taken together, they show unambiguously that on the heels of the first American Gilded Age came more than six decades of imperfect but steady upward progress toward greater economic equality, more cooperation in the public square, a stronger social fabric, and a growing culture of solidarity. Throughout the first two-thirds of the 20th century, we actually narrowed the economic chasm born in the Gilded Age, making progress not only during the Great Depression and World War II, but for decades, both before and after. In that same period, we gradually overcame political polarization and learned to collaborate across party lines. We also steadily wove an ever-stronger network of community and family ties, and our culture became more focused on our responsibilities to one another and less focused on our narrower self-interest. In short, America experienced a dramatic, multifaceted, and multi-decade upswing. By the time we arrived at the middle of the 20th century, the Gilded Age was a distant memory. America had been transformed into a more egalitarian, cooperative, cohesive, and altruistic nation. At this mid-century moment, our still-segregated, 
and still chauvinist society was far from perfect. But as the 1960s opened, we were increasingly attentive to our imperfections, especially in racial and gender terms. Our new president then described us as poised to tackle our challenges together. Ask not what your country can do for you, John F. Kennedy famously said. Ask what you can do for your country. To Americans at that stage in our history, the argument that collective well-being was even more important than individual well-being was hardly countercultural. Over the first six decades of the 20th century, America had become demonstrably, indeed measurably, a more we society. But then, as this chart indicates, and as those who lived through that period know too well, in the mid-1960s, the decades-long upswing in our shared economic, political, and cultural life abruptly reversed direction. America suddenly found itself in the midst of a clear downturn. Between the mid-1960s and today, by scores of hard measures along multiple dimensions, we have been experiencing declining economic equality, the deterioration of compromise in the public square, a fraying social fabric, and a descent into cultural narcissism. As the 1960s moved into the 1970s, 80s, and beyond, we recreated the socioeconomic chasm of the Gilded Age at an accelerated pace. In that same period, we replaced cooperation with political polarization. We allowed our community and family ties to unravel. And our culture became far more focused on the individual and less interested in the common good. Since the 1950s, we have made important progress in expanding individual rights. But we have sharply regressed in our sense of shared responsibilities and community values. Over the past five decades, America has become demonstrably, indeed measurably, a more I society. Now, generally speaking, each of these trends in economics, society, politics, culture, is recognized in the relevant scholarly literature, although they've largely been treated as separate phenomena. Rarely have scholars recognized the striking concurrence of so many different trends following the same course during the whole of the 20th century. And yet, when charted side by side as they are here, it's clear even to non-scholars that these are not four separate unrelated phenomena. Indeed, the data here is so correlated that by using advanced methods of analysis, we can combine these four trends to reveal a single statistical phenomenon, one inverted U-curve that provides a scientifically validated summary of the past 125 years in America's story. This meta-trend is a phenomenon my co-author and I have come to call the I-we-I curve, a gradual climb into greater interdependence and cooperation, followed by a steep descent into greater independence and egoism, from I to we and back again to I. This broad trend has been reflected in our experience of equality, our expression of democracy, our stock of social capital, our cultural identity, and our shared understanding of what this nation is all about. Rebecca Edwards, a historian of the Gilded Age, 
observed that the lessons one draws from a period of history depend to a large degree on one's choice of beginning and ending points. What this eye-we-eye curve makes clear is that the historical period from which we should take inspiration today isn't the 1960s. Looking back only that far has taken many commentators down the road of nostalgia, leaving them little more than to lament some paradise lost. In other words, looking to the moment when the upswing ended turns out not to be very instructive. Looking to the moment it began proves far more fruitful, especially when the context of that moment bears striking resemblance to the context in which we find ourselves today. Thus, the lesson of America's I-We-I century is not that we should return nostalgically to some supposed peak of American greatness, but rather that we should take instruction and inspiration from a period of despair, much like our own, on the heels of which Americans successfully and measurably bent history in a more promising direction. This broad analysis teaches us that America has once before experienced a storm of unbridled individualism in our culture, our communities, our politics, and our economics, and it produced then, as it has today, a situation that few Americans found appealing. But we successfully weathered that storm once, and we can do it again. Thus, if ever there were a historical moment whose hopeful lessons we need to learn, it's the moment when the first American Gilded Age turned into what historians call the Progressive Era, a moment which set in motion a sea change that helped us reclaim our nation's promise. So what are some of those lessons? How, in another dark moment in our nation's history, did our predecessors manage to turn things around? And how can we apply what we learn from their legacy to do the same today? The story that I've shared with you so far is fundamentally a statistical story, shaped by insights gained through the measurement of trends over time. Remember, it's those inverted U-curves that even turned us on to the idea that we've been here once before. So in looking for clues about how to create another upswing, it makes sense to wonder if there's anything the data itself can tell us. When we see a number of different trends that all start to move in the same direction at roughly the same moment, one clue we can look for is something statisticians call the leading variable. In other words, which trend started moving in the right direction first? If we can determine which of these curves moved first, we might have a sense of what drove the others forward. And thus, what we could do, what we could focus on, if we want to recreate a similar pattern. But this story is not just a statistical narrative. It's also a historical one. We have the historical record to turn to for clues as well. We have the history of ideas, what people were writing and talking about at different times. We also have the history of events, social movements, economic crises, innovations, elections, and countless other occurrences that influence how a society changes over time. When we pair the data with the historical record, what we see is that the leading variable in the story of the upswing is culture. What led the last upswing was a reinvention of our shared cultural values, what we thought was possible, what we believed was important, and how we saw one another. 
And this, it turns out, is a pretty surprising conclusion (laughs) because we tend to have a bias in this country, particularly in the social sciences, that economics drives everything. That culture is somehow just the froth on the waves of socioeconomic change. That people are first and foremost economic animals driven by incentives, not ideas or morals or cultural values. But going back to the clues we find in the data... While culture seems to be the leading variable, economics is very clearly the lagging variable. We did not get out of a downturn and into an upswing last time through economic or political solutions. The huge gap between rich and poor and the political gridlock that accompanied it began to change only after we turned the tide of cultural narcissism. What that means is that in order to successfully solve our economic inequality and political polarization today, we need to start not in the halls of power, not with legislative or programmatic solutions, but instead in the places where our cultural beliefs and values are formed, the places we turn to for moral formation and meaning-making the stories we tell ourselves about our past, present, and future, and the everyday interactions that shape how we see ourselves and one another. These are places of the heart, places of connection. This is where we can begin to move once again from a culture of I to a culture of we, a change in our shared values that has the potential to ripple out into every other aspect of our society. This is how we turned our last multifaceted crisis into a multi-decade upswing, and this is how we can reclaim our nation's promise once again. American culture during the Gilded Age was largely characterized by something called social Darwinism. In 1859, Charles Darwin published his theory that came to be called the survival of the fittest, a description of how the natural world is organized. Soon social commentators began promoting the idea that if competition is how the natural world works, then that's how society should work as well. Only the strong will survive and the devil take the hindmost. It's worth noting that Darwin himself did not subscribe to these ideas, but many Americans did, arguing that those at the bottom were somehow less evolved and deserved whatever leftovers they got. Cutting-edge science was mixed with age-old bigotry to promote the principle of every man for himself. Some of the first people to challenge these ideas were people of faith. A bold new generation of religious leaders began to critique social Darwinism by proclaiming what they called the social gospel. Protestant Christianity, like so many other parts of our society, had become extremely individualistic during the Gilded Age, emphasizing personal salvation above all else. But the preachers of the social gospel argued that community and equality lay at the heart of Christ's message, and that a Christian vision of society was not about gaining the advantage over the weak and vulnerable, but instead lifting, healing, and caring for all. Walter Rauschenbusch, a Baptist pastor and an important figure in the social gospel movement, wrote that baptism was not just a ritual act of individual salvation, but also an act of dedication 
to a religious and social movement. What Christ offered, he taught, was not just a path out of sin, but a blueprint for a more just society. Rauschenbusch was hardly alone. The phrase, what would Jesus do, was popularized in a best-selling 1899 novel by a congregational minister whose book was a call to national repentance for the gross economic inequality of the day. It is idle to imagine that changes in our governmental machinery or the organization of our industries will bring us peace, wrote Washington Gladden, another social gospel preacher. The trouble lies deeper. What we have got to have if we want true democracy is a different kind of men and women, men and women to whom duties are more than rights and service dearer than privilege. These moral leaders knew instinctively what we have just seen through data analysis, that social, political, and economic change had to begin first as a change of heart. But it wasn't just preachers leading a moral awakening that prompted the last upswing. The cultural shift was also fueled by storytellers, writers who were working to reframe Americans' understanding of the past, present, and future both how much our nation had faltered in living up to its founding principles and how much promise lay in reclaiming those principles and imagining a future newly committed to embodying them. In 1892, journalist Ida B. Wells started publishing articles and pamphlets in which she presented an exhaustive account of the brutal practice of lynching and the cruel realities of life under Jim Crow. The way to right wrongs, she wrote, is to shine the light of truth on them. The stories Wells told put a human face on problems most white Americans were content to ignore. Though her pieces were never published in the white-run magazines of the day, Wells joined the ranks of many journalists who worked to expose the hypocrisy and brutality of the Gilded Age. Known as muckrakers, these writers produced vivid portraits of the human cost of exploitative and unjust systems, which pricked the hearts of their readers and prompted them to push for change. While some storytellers were chastening everyday Americans with stories of injustice, inhumanity, and corruption that social Darwinism had produced, others were inspiring their minds with imaginative stories of equality, beauty, cooperation, and innovation that could characterize an America built on the social gospel. In 1888, Edward Bellamy published a novel entitled Looking Backward. In it, the protagonist falls asleep in the year 1887 and wakes up in the year 2000 to find the America he had known completely changed. The cutthroat competition of his own Gilded Age had been replaced by cooperation and the individualistic winner-take-all mindset by a deep sense of mutual responsibility and mutual aid. Looking Backward was an instant bestseller because it was more than just a good story. It put forward a hopeful, specific vision of democratic citizens choosing to organize their institutions around collective problem-solving and a shared sense of destiny. The social gospel called upon people of faith to do the soul-searching and repentant work of recognizing their own complicity in the crises America was facing, and it challenged them to stand up and claim their role as moral leaders in society. 
The muckrakers told stories that exposed the human cost of America's moral drift and called out the hypocrisy of a nation built upon principles of liberty and equality, producing neither for millions of its most vulnerable citizens. And novelists imagined exciting new futures built upon a moral awakening, reminding Americans that they didn't have to take society's structures and systems for granted. This nation, this bold experiment, could be whatever they chose to make it. Together, these cultural influencers sparked a movement. As the data I've presented make clear, as more and more people turned away from cultural narcissism and toward cultural solidarity, the effects rippled out into nearly every corner of American society. Which brings us to the last chapter of our story. How did Americans at the turn of the last century translate this new moral and cultural outlook into actual measurable change? How did they create new structures, systems, programs, and laws that bridge the gap of political polarization, reversed economic inequality, and rewove our social fabric? The answer might surprise you. They did it through exactly the same mechanism Alexis de Tocqueville had observed to be so important to America's founding. They started clubs. Wherever at the head of some new undertaking in the United States, Tocqueville had said, you would be sure to find an association. Citizens gathering together to achieve a common goal was a fact of life in the 1830s but something that had fallen out of favor by the 1880s. But by the 1900s, associations, clubs, societies, federations, and organizations were once again becoming the places that Americans made democracy work. It was this coming together on a human scale that paved the way for a sweeping set of reforms and innovations, many of which form the very basis of American society as we know it today. As congregations across America embraced the social gospel, they transformed into centers dedicated not just to worship, but to youth groups, scout troops, day schools, soup kitchens, athletic teams, and more. Meanwhile, young professionals started rotary clubs, lions clubs, and fraternal organizations to support one another and serve the community, all of which brought lonely, isolated Americans together and rewove our tattered social fabric. After Looking Backward was published, Bellamy Clubs sprung up all over the country. In these and countless other groups like them, Americans began experimenting with innovative ideas for how to solve problems themselves in their neighborhoods, towns, and cities. As a result, they invented solutions that never existed before and thus transcended the gridlocked left-right political and ideological framework. Successful ideas went viral and eventually bubbled up to create widespread change. New forms of municipal administration, publicly owned utilities, food and drug regulations, consumer protections, and even free public high schools are just a few examples of the innovations created by everyday citizens tinkering in the laboratories of democracy. After reading the muckrakers' harrowing accounts of life in slums and factories, educated elites crossed the tracks into tenement districts and started settlement houses, places where rich and poor Americans could come together in shared community spaces. 
Settlement houses fostered bonds of trust and understanding across class lines and produced passionate activists who were responsible for the creation of many things we take for granted today. Child labor laws, the juvenile court system, public sanitation infrastructure, and even public parks, public libraries, and playgrounds all came to be, thanks in large part, to settlement houses. As more Americans began to see the immorality of exploitative wage labor, garment workers, machinists, farm workers, blacksmiths, and many others banded together through labor associations and unions. They succeeded in winning from their employers higher pay, safety regulations, and more reasonable working hours, which evolved into seminal government protections, such as antitrust legislation, workers' comp, the minimum wage, and ultimately social security. In the face of ongoing racism and segregation, black Americans created schools, churches, cultural institutions, sports teams, and advocacy organizations, which offered critical support as millions relocated out of the South during the Great Migration. It was this explosion of black associational life that gave birth to the civil rights movement. And women's clubs, sewing circles, music groups, literary societies, neighborhood associations, and relief societies created new spaces for women to gather, build relationships, organize, and flex their civic muscles through which they slowly built a successful campaign to win the right to vote. No one party, no one policy or platform And no one charismatic leader was responsible for bringing about America's upswing as we entered the 20th century. It was instead an immense collaboration of countless ordinary Americans, just like you and me. Living in a time of loneliness, self-centeredness, economic inequality, and political infighting, just like the one we are living through today. And they had, just as we do today, a choice. They could continue the corrosive slide toward a culture of I, or they could reclaim the latent power of we. History tells us how they used their agency. We are the inheritors of the democracy they saved. But we are also the inheritors of an unraveling, a backslide that has landed us right back where they started. And so the choice presents itself again. Will we drift along with the downturn? Or will we master the moment and right the ship? If we choose drift, the consequences will surely be disastrous. But if we choose mastery, we have the chance to reverse our course and write a whole new chapter in the American story. The conditions and specific challenges we face today, though often eerily familiar echoes of the past, are of course different in important ways from those faced by the Americans in the first Gilded Age. And accordingly, the paths we follow and the solutions we create will necessarily be different as well. But I suspect that many of the characters, the heroes and heroines of this new American epoch will look very much the same. So the question is, where do you 
see yourself in this story. Maybe you're a moral leader, a person who can speak in terms of right and wrong with confidence and compassion and shepherd others through the inner work that will change the way we show up as neighbors and citizens. Or possibly you're a truth teller, an advocate who can shine a light on injustice and call for accountability, or a visionary who can imagine bold new futures and inspire others to make them a reality. Or perhaps you are a gatherer, someone who can invite people in and create new ways of being together that blend our online and offline lives and bridge our deepest divides. Or maybe you're an organizer who can help citizens find their voice, find common cause with others, and successfully press for change. Or maybe you are a joiner, someone who heeds others' calls to come together and step out of loneliness and isolation. Or maybe you're a civic innovator, a pioneer who can experiment, iterate, and invent totally new solutions to our shared problems and see them through to becoming the programs and policies that reshape our national landscape. Whatever your gifts and unique passions, there is a place for you on the right side of history. We've gotten ourselves out of a mess, just like the one we're in now, and we can do it again. The task will not be easy, and nothing less than the success of the American experiment hangs in the balance. But as we look to an uncertain future, we must keep in mind what is perhaps the greatest lesson of America's I-We-I century. As Theodore Roosevelt put it, the fundamental rule of our national life, the rule which underlies all others, is that on the whole, and in the long run, we shall go up or down together. Thank you. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.